0: So we're going to keep going in Matthew, right where we left off in verse 18, Matthew chapter 21, verse 18. Um, yeah, it says now in the morning, it starts off. We should know that there's a progression that's going on here that's that's actually kind of a, a weak progression that we, we kind of call Easter. On, on Sunday, on Palm Sunday... It was the Passover, it's the day they select the lamb and they pick the lamb and they name uh, the lamb that they're going to be sacrificing and they bring that lamb into their home as a welcome and that lamb lives with the family and I've joked about it when we did this back in the Old Testament, like what that would do to little Jewish kids because you fall in love with this cute, fluffy, you know, one-year lamb and then your family sacrifices it like they, and part of that connection is you're going to lose something that's precious So on Sunday, Jesus becomes precious to the Jewish people and they take him in and they name him as Jesus as their Lord. Um, And then on Monday, there were the money changers and the cleaning out of the temple. And in the Passover week, there is this period where you send your kids and you get all the leaven out of your house. There's a cleaning day and you clean out all the sin and all the corruption and you just get rid of it because you're going to make it consecrated and holy unto God. So that kind of happens on Monday. And then when we see now in the morning in verse 18, there is a progression going on, and it fits perfectly with Passover traditions. And and, and we are and as though Jesus is the Lamb of God that will be sacrificed for the sins of the family or of the entire world in, in God's case. So as, now in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry. Um, He's likely getting up before breakfast, you know, that morning feeling when you're kind of hungry in the morning, doing devotions. Uh, he's likely got some of his closest followers trailing along with him. Uh, and, and, and you wonder at some point as this celebration is going on that like no one thought to feed Jesus, <laughs> right? And we see this Jesus who's entirely human. He actually gets hungry. He's not a ghost Jesus walking around. He's, a, he's incarnate, he's human, and there's this hunger. And that sets up kind of the story. Despite the malice that he saw from the Pharisees, uh, Jesus gets up in the morning. He goes back in for another day. So as our sister goes off for missionary work and you have a rough day, looking like Jesus, he just gets up. He goes right back to the very same context where he is getting harassed and he was, he's getting uh, not welcomed by the Pharisees. And he's hungry. Um, an odd thing that he feeds thousands of people but he doesn't make his own breakfast. you know. And Jesus, throughout the Gospels, all four of them, there's no account of Jesus ever doing a miracle to serve himself. Every miracle he does serves others as a model for us. If we live our life, we can live our lives for ourselves or, alternative, we live our life for other people all the time as much as we can. And we give away what we can get up in the morning and give away to other people. So then we get verse 19, and seeing a fig tree by the road he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. There's an emphatic with immediately there. Like what struck the disciples that were with him, smaller number, not the whole multitude, is that it immediately, the fig tree withered away. There was this supernatural event. A lot of times with Jesus's miracles, there's no fireworks or little sparkles or anything like the movies would have. Like He says you're healed and people just stand up and they're healed, but it's not like you can see it happening. Or there's food for thousands of people, but nobody quite knows when the food was made. Like they just put their hand in the basket and there's food coming out. In this one, there's actually a visual change in the tree that they can see. So as context, Numbers 3.7 says, And they shall attend to his needs and the needs of the whole congregation before the tabernacle of meeting to do the work of the tabernacle. There is a context here that we see this fig tree withering away. Jesus is going to use this as a parable if you start start skimming down. But the context for this was there were duties of the priests that they were supposed to be doing from the time of Moses right up till today. And part of what we saw at the beginning of the book of Matthew is that this idea of taking care of the temple, making sure that there's fair trade, ushering and welcoming, praying with people, healing people, blessing people, praise and worship should be going on. Jesus, in each of those cases, pointed out how they weren't happening and the priests weren't doing their job, and then he started doing the thing that they should have been doing. In each case, he's acting as a high priest or one of the Levite priests, but he's not a Levite. He's, he's of the tribe of Judah. So he would have to be like a priest of the, the kind of priest that Melchizedek was not a Levite priest out of the Mosaic covenant, but a priest that just wants to dedicate and serve his life to the Lord, a lot like Melchizedek did, who was a priest in the time of Abraham, pre-Moses. So, and if you want more on that, like you can dig into, is it Hebrews that goes through Melchizedek? There's a whole thing in Hebrews that goes through that. I'll give you the chapter in a little bit. In this chapter, we got three things that hasn't really been nailed down. The priests were supposed to teach the law, Leviticus 10, 11. And in verse 23 today, we're going to see that. The gatekeepers, they are supposed to be making judgments and applying the law. So not only are they supposed to teach it, they're supposed to take unique situations and then apply it and be able to make confident judgment calls using the law. So if you say to me, you know, is, is, you know, uh, is Jackson Pollock uh, an artist that does Christian work, a good Mosaic priest should be able to apply the law and say, splattering paint on a portrait is not necessarily honoring God. It's art, but it's not. You know, you're supposed to make a confident judgment call. And that's 1 Chronicles 23.4, and he's going to do that in verse 27. They're also supposed to be scribes. So part of the Levitic job was you know, that papyrus would get crumbly and old and break apart. That's why we don't have a lot of ancient texts. So they were supposed to be copying the Bible out meticulously and perfectly over and over and over again. So some of the Levites were scribes their entire life. All they did is copied out new editions of the Bible that were supposed to be perfect copies. Uh, So pre-copy machine, they did that. Jesus is going to call them out on that today too. If you're a scribe of the word, you're supposed to know God's word. So in verse 42, um, he's going to challenge them on that point. So 2 Chronicles 34, 12, they're supposed to be scribes. So these interactions with the temple are systematically showing that the Levitical priesthood has failed, while at the same time they're showing that Jesus is willing to pick up each of those duties. He has read the Bible. He will teach the Word of God. And this principle kind of endures. If God planted the Levites and they were supposed to be cultivating and bearing fruit within the temple system, they're the vine dressers. They're supposed to be taking care of the orchard. And they're not doing that. So so God's going to take away his blessing and his anointing on the Mosaic priesthood. He's going to lift it. So Matthew Henry kind of says this really well. well, So I just grabbed a quote from him because sometimes it's okay to quote these, just the way he puts this. There are false people. There are false institutions. There are false churches. and, and, And when God sees a falseness in his worship, it withers and it dies. It, does, it may not happen immediately, but it does happen. So there are still people that worship at the temple after Jesus is resurrected, but the withering of the Jewish community has definitely happened. And the blossoming of, of the worship of God has happened within the church. Um, and we see the same thing happening over and over again. So there's a principle. Here's what Matthew Henry says. A false and hypocritical profession commonly withers in this world, and its effect is of Christ's curse. The fig tree that had no fruit soon lost its leaves. Hypocrites that look plausible for a time, but having no principle, no root in themselves, their profession will soon come to nothing. The gifts wither, the common grace decays, and the credit of the profession declines and sinks, and the falseness and folly of the pretender are manifested in that. So I just like how Matthew Henry put that. Part of this chapter is that we're going to be discerning. I know I'm doing a lot of setup today, Uh, we'll get to verse 20. If I'm going to spend time on something in my life that looks like it has fruit, then it should have fruit. It shouldn't just have leaves. So it may look good. It may sound good. It may be called a church. That person on the stage might be called a pastor. They might sometimes quote pieces of the Bible here and there, but we have to be discerning because if that doesn't have fruit in it, we're supposed to walk away. We're supposed to be discerning. And Matthew 21 teaches us some of how to do that. The fig tree is really important in the middle of this chapter because it shows that it's God's will to wither false things. A fig tree with leaves, when the leaves pop out, it's also in blossom. That's when it's supposed to have figs too. It's not like apple trees. They blossom and then they make apples. Fig trees, when those leaves are right, you know that their figs are right. So you get a tree with with the leaves out but no figs, that's a problem because it's giving a false witness. It's showing that it has abundance, but when you look under the leaves, there's nothing to be found. And, and I think all of us have seen that. We've seen those kinds of places where there, there, it looks like a church, it talks like a church, it walks like a church, but it's not a church. And on the inside, there's just a withering that's happened there. It's just dead on the inside. God removes spiritual authority away from the Mosaic priesthood because it's utterly failed to do what he asked them to do, which is why it's a big deal to actually do what God says to do. God says we, we pray for people, we pray for people. And, and, and we don't fight against that. So as we go through the chapter, keep that context in mind. He's moving from a priesthood, a Levitical priesthood, to a church priesthood. And that distinction's going to get made as we finish through Matthew here. Verse 20, when the disciples saw it, the fig tree, they marveled and said, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? Again, they're focused on how fast it happened. They marvel at the miracle, but Jesus wants them to see the parable. So Jesus changes the focus from, they're focusing on the withering part and he's focusing on the meaning of it. So verse 21, Jesus answered them and said, assuredly, which in the Greek is actually the word, amen. I just thought that was cool. Amen so be it. How did it wither away so soon? So be it, I say to you. That's exactly the will of God. He wants that to happen. So be it, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it'll be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. So Jesus earlier destroyed the pigs. Now he destroys a tree. Jesus never curses humans. Like, we don't see him ever do miracles to hurt people. But he uses these kinds of things to show the judgment of God, to show them that judgment can happen. And and he promises that it will, um, but not in his ministry in the first coming. This is an odd miracle. There's a tone of irritation here. So we have to ask, why did Jesus do this? Why on the third day is there, there this withering? So there's nothing on the tree but leaves. It's false advertising, but there's a prophetic element too. The last time we saw fig trees as as an image of something, it's when Adam and Eve covered themselves with fig leaves. right? So the first Adam who separated humanity from God and was a representative, like we're all born into the sin of Adam, uses a fig tree to cover himself. Jesus uses a fig tree as the salvation for all humanity to reveal what's false in the world. So he uncovers with the fig tree and the withering of the leaves shows everybody that there's no fruit there. This is, this is exactly what he's going to do to the Pharisees. He's going to show everybody with an earshot that there's no fruit with these guys. So like using the fig tree and, and separating humanity from God, Jesus uses the fig tree to reveal all of this and reunite humanity to God. Like the symmetry here is perfect. So there's a fruitless priesthood. They got lots of leaves, but no fruit. And they're going to lose their blessing and their life behind it. So then he talks to his disciples about prayer. And he says, this is how prayer gets answered. If you have faith, God listens and he responds. The promise of God to answer faithful prayers is important. He doesn't just answer all prayers. He answers prayers in faith. So when we agree with God, his will then becomes our will. So, if we're praying with a faith that God will do his will as he promised, then we're praying for those kinds of things, right? If you have faith and do not doubt, the word doubt there is interesting. It's to separate, to prefer, or decide. It can even be used as a word for striving with somebody. So, when we doubt God, we're striving with him, we're separate from God, we're apart from God. We prefer ourselves over God. So this language is important because people use this as like, boy, if you name it and claim it, you'll get it. And That's all there is to it. And I tried it. I tried naming a Ford Mustang and I claimed that Ford Mustang and I prayed for it, but God didn't give it to me because it wasn't in God's will. It wasn't God's intention. It wasn't part of God's plan, apparently, for me to be driving a Ford Mustang. Maybe my son. I don't know. And then I can borrow it. Um, but it's important to understand like how Jesus says this because I believe Jesus says it perfectly. If you have faith, which is to trust in God, right? Faith is agreement with God despite all appearances. We don't strive with God, which is the word for doubt. So it's it's interesting. One of the things in Romans 4.20 that gets bragged about with Abraham is that Abraham was promised something by God. And I love how Romans 4.20 words this. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. You see how consistent that is with what Jesus said? He staggered not. When we pray and we stagger, we're doubting what God says. And and the kind of prayer Jesus is talking about is that we pray without staggering. We know God's will. We're confident in God's will. We can pray God's will. And when we pray God's will, he does it. And we've seen some stuff as a fellowship, like the Sunday night group. We've seen some stuff where it's, it's, it's stunning when it happens. But we know that when we're praying, we're not doing it, because we want a miracle. That's our will. We're praying it because we know God wants that thing done. And so we pray in faith without separation, without, with, without a distance between us and God. We stagger not at his promises, and we pray for those things. Uh, a, a wise man that I know named Mike Houck said faith is patience. And I just love that idea too. Trusting in the promises of God despite the appearances that are there. We pray with faith, And that has to do with patience, too. It doesn't matter how long it's going to take. The disciples are stunned at how fast this happens because Jesus has been training them to pray without ceasing. Sometimes we pray and we never stop because we're going to pray until that thing happens, right? And if it's in God's will, it'll happen. He uses an extreme example. We've seen Jesus do this a lot. Verse 21 mentions, if you tell this mountain to move... um, It's interesting because, like, I think there are Christians that go off and start praying for mountains to move. And they're missing the idea that sometimes Jesus uses these examples to make a point. And the point is, it doesn't matter how big the thing is you pray for. If it's God's will, God can do it, even up into moving mountains. Um, But that, again, is an example of how big of the thing we can pray for. Where they're standing right now, between the Mount of Olives and the, the Jerusalem's Temple Mount, There's a valley that is full of orchards. Even today, it's full of fig trees in large part because of this passage. So there have been fig trees and olive trees growing. That's why they called it the Mount of Olives. It's just good soil. It's perfect for it. There's a water source there, um, and they do it. So this place where they're standing, um, they're east of the city, and the sea is to the west. So if he says you can move this mountain, he's either looking at the Mount of Olives or he's looking at, at, at the Temple Mount. If he's talking about the Temple Mount, that's a really interesting thing, right? So it fits with the conversation about the priesthood, and the Romans will actually dismantle that temple to where they actually take the top of the mountain off, and a lot of those stones got just thrown out because the Roman rule uh, was when you destroy something, you're not supposed to leave one stone on top of another. That was Roman dictate. So you can bet those Roman soldiers followed the dictate to the letter because they didn't want to get killed by not doing the orders. So, if Jesus is looking at the Temple Mount when he says this, to move mountains is a colloquialism for that place where the rabbis are working. And if you're praying that that gets removed, it's going to get removed, which it does in a few decades. Like the Temple Mount's going to be gone. Another way to take this is that he's looking at the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, when you stand on it, gives you a beautiful view of Jerusalem. And one thought is if you're standing on that, that mountain, it could be that it fits really well with prophecy. And as we've read Matthew, again, I don't know which of the mountains he's looking at right now, but if we look at Zechariah 14, verse 4, and if we think of how Matthew writes where every, oh, nearly every paragraph is fitting an Old Testament prophecy, listen to Zechariah 14, 4, thinking that Jesus is looking at the Mount of Olives. And this is a prophetic uh, piece in Zechariah 14:4. And his feet shall stand in that day on the Mount of Olives. No doubt about where that is, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and towards the west. And there shall be a very great valley and half of the mountain shall remove towards the north and half of it shall move towards the south. So prophetically speaking, let me put this together. This would require like an earthquake, right? To take because the Mount of Olives is a big, long range kind of thing. It's like something splits the mountains in two and parts them. This would do two things. First of all, this has not happened yet. The Mount of Olives is still in place. And Jesus is teaching them to pray. And when we pray, we pray for things that will happen in the future, right? So maybe we should be praying for that mountain to move because that's God's will and he will move that mountain because he's prophesied that he will move it. So Jesus is using an actual prophecy saying, you guys should be praying for that because God's already said that'll happen. You should pray that mountain will move and its stuff will go to the sea. How would it go to the sea? If the water sources of the Jerusalem area got redirected and carried that mountain away towards the Mediterranean. That's how that would happen. Well, that's that's a whole different thing, but it also kind of fits with Matthew. Again, is he looking at the Mount of Olives? Is he looking at the Temple Mount? Is he just talking about mountains in general? There's a colloquialism in the first century that rabbis could take care of tricky things, which is about to happen in the next few verses. This is a third way to read this. When you really liked your rabbi and you said, you bring your rabbi difficult, challenging questions, and the rabbi just unpacks them in a way that you're like, wow, that's incredible. One of the compliments they would give in the first century is they'd say, my rabbi can move mountains. Like that's my rabbi, he moves mountains. And so Jesus could just be using that colloquialism here. If you pray that, that mountain will move, it'll move. In other words, he's calling them rabbis. He's giving them license to move mountains. With, I'm doing little quotes for my podcasters. By the way, God bless our podcasters. And, and God bless you as you listen. Um, but that idea that um, you could move mountains could be what Jesus is doing here. He's using a common colloquialism of the first century. And he's saying, you guys are going to be able to move mountains just like you've been complimenting your rabbis can do which totally fits too. All three passages fit with it. But here's the thing, verse 21, be removed and cast into the sea. I'm not willing to dismiss that this is literal because isn't that the point? The point is we pray for things and they happen and it shouldn't intimidate us how large those are. And the stark or extreme example is exactly what Jesus wanted for us to hear. So I wanna come back to that point too. This could just be literal and that maybe we should be praying for those things to move that God wants to see moved. So one question is, okay, let's do a little study on prayer (laughs) because here we are, God's giving his disciples this prayer. First of all, we should say, how how do we pray? And we've talked about that a little bit. Whatever things you ask, verse 22, whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. So faith is at the heart of prayer. It's like faith is in the heart and prayer is the word. They go together. So if we believe and we never pray, that's like, faithlessness. That's not okay. So it amazes me you've got bodies of believers that don't pray together. That's stunning to me because it's absolutely the tool God's given Christians. What a great thing for the enemy of God to convince people that prayer is not important or it's irrelevant. What a wonderful thing for Satan. He would love that. Um, the other—the opposite's true too. If you pray but you don't believe, it just doesn't work. You're just saying words. And there's groups like that too where, where prayer is like a recitation you can actually write it down, and everybody recites it together. Like, prayer without belief is just words. And it, equally, the two have to go together. The heart has to go with the spoken word, and they have to be the same thing. So we pray what's on our heart. We pray what we believe. We pray in line with the will of God, and we pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's taught us how to do this. But we forget. It's so easy to forget. So then the second question is, who who gets to pray? And I think it's really clear that he's teaching his disciples this is a huge shift because rabbis did all the prayer in the Mosaic system. You'd give your sacrifice to the rabbis, they would sacrifice it on an altar. They were your intercessor. You had to go through the rabbi or the rabbinical system in order to get the blessings of God, in order for God to hear you even. So this is a huge shift. It's not a huge shift in that we see lots of people in the Old Testament that pray directly to God and he actually honors those prayers, but it's a shift in the religious system that has developed by the first century where those rabbis have taken that role. It's a lot like the Catholic Church claiming that their priests are your intercessor for God, that you have to go through a priest to talk to God, Um, or you have to just do the rosary and pray the words they've taught you to pray. But this idea that there's a shift going on, he makes a promise to his disciples, we should note that this isn't the mass multitudes that he's talking to. He's talking to believers, people that are that know his word and know his well. Um, think of the impact that this would have. Like this is Leviticus nine, number six, Exodus twenty-eight. The Old Testament Levites gave all those sacrifices. They did all this praying, and then God would show up. Now it's anybody can intercede, pray, ask, inquire of God. We don't need the Levites. We don't need the Urim and the Thummim anymore. We don't. We don't have to go through that system. So when he's teaching his disciples these things, these are things that if you're a a Levitical priest, you'd kill somebody for teaching this stuff. This would be absolutely against the Mosaic system. So if you believe the Mosaic system is the only way to talk to God, then this Jesus character is a problem for you. If you've read the entirety of the Word of God, and you know that there were people that prayed to God outside the Levitical system, you know David went to God outside the Levitical system. You know that Abraham talked to a Melchizedek priest. He wasn't Levite. So this is why the idea of the, the there's a priesthood that goes beyond the Levites. And if that's the case, then this isn't a problem. This might actually be God giving us a new system. So if, if depending on where you fall on this question of who is Christ, who is Jesus, then you're going to fall in very different places on this. Then it says, what can we pray for? Verse 22 says, whatever, whatsoever things. In the Greek, it's a contrast. Whatsoever means like all, and things means specifics. So he uses a general word and a specific word. What do you pray for? Today in the English, I think a better translation might be anything and everything. General, specific, or all things, all the world of in particular things. That's what we pray for. We pray for the general. We pray for the specific. Whatsoever things you ask in prayer all over the place all would the word all is all inclusive there's no boundaries to that and whatsoever is particular and specific pray for god in the big stuff pray for him in the specific stuff general particular great small praise supplication anything and everything john when john talks about prayer uh, john 14:12 he adds a, a thing that i'm going to add here too just so we get the whole counsel on prayer Um, So we aren't necessarily praying for earthly things or selfish things. John points out, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So John even repeats it. We ask things in the name of Jesus. Now this doesn't mean at the end of the prayer you just say, in Jesus' name, amen, and that makes everything count. I want a Mustang, in Jesus' name, amen. That's using the Lord's name in vain. It's as bad as cursing right? If you pray for earthly things or you pray for selfish things, that's not in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus means we're praying for things and we're never praying for ourselves necessarily. We can, this is really difficult territory. Of course we can pray for ourselves, but if we're modeling Jesus, he didn't really do miracles for himself. So a selfish thing doesn't necessarily fall into that category. Continue to pray for yourselves. I'm not saying you can't, But I am saying that in this condition of like when we pray in Jesus' name, we're praying for the things that Jesus would want to see happen. And it's it's a kind of prayer that we're talking about that has this kind of promise that goes with it. So again, when it gets to prayer, when in doubt, just pray anyways. Pray about anything and everything. Pray about that Mustang. If you really want to pray about it, pray about it. God might even make that happen in your life like he did with our hot tub right? Sometimes God does it just to say, I love you, you selfish person, yeah. right? I just want to show you I'm here. And he does that, I think, with immature believers a lot. Like I prayed for grape jelly. There was grape. It was just, I just felt like God telling me, I'll, even if you're broke, I'll make sure you get grape jelly. Like it's stupid and it's selfish, but we've seen God answer those prayers too. And you could say, ah, oh, it's just a coincidence. Maybe, but when the coincidences keep happening, a logical person starts to say, maybe these aren't coincidences anymore. So it is true that we should pray for anything and everything. Here's three true statements about prayer. And for me, these help me structure a very complex topic. What we get out of this passage is true number one, nothing is too big for God, nothing. I think we should walk away with that from this passage. There is just nothing too big for God. And when we pray and we limit God, we're we're not doing it in his name. Here's the second thing. It is true that God will not be our servant or our puppet when we pray. If we pray against his will, this promise just doesn't hold, right? It has to be in the will of God. And then three, this is also true. We don't know the full power of prayer until we do it. Talk to a lot of believers and they're like, I don't know if I'm comfortable with prayer, I'm not comfortable. And there's different kinds. There's prayer by myself. There's prayer with other people. There's corporate prayer as a group. Uh, there's, there's different ways to pray. There's whole books on different ideas for praying. Whatever it takes to get you closer to Jesus, start praying first and worry about the results later. So many people don't pray because they don't think it'll happen. Well, try them. Test God on that. Like, give it to God, put it on his altar, and pray about it. So the disciples, what we do know also about this passage is that as we move forward, the disciples become praying people. They gather to pray and they do it over and over and over and why not (laughs) like this is a huge gift it's like having a batman super belt and never buckling up like and christians do this all the time we get the weapons of spiritual warfare prayer is our our tool to make things happen in the name of god and when we don't do it we're just it's like we're going out not even bothering to bring the tools god's given us it's an amazing gift It's like having the President of the United States on speed dial. And whenever you want something, you can just call. But God's so much bigger than the President of the United States. Like way bigger. It's not even a good comparison. It's horrible. I'll get back to my script. For this new priesthood, Jesus is empowering his disciples to pray. So when you're planted, when God's planted a priesthood they're supposed to be making blessing, blessings. This is something the priests were supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be praying for the people. They're supposed to be blessing the people when they came and when they went. They're coming and they're going. Uh, verse 21, without separation, offerings first. Jesus is going to be that offering so forgiven saints can take on that role of the priesthood. This is awesome because the priest would make the offering and then they would do the blessings. Jesus has already made the offering. We don't, have to re- we don't have to sit and do the offering first. We can go straight to prayer for all of eternity. God just made it so much easier for us. Numbers 6, 24, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace so they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. That was instructions for the priest. That's what they were supposed to say. So when Jesus goes in the temple, there's no record of a priest saying that to him. Why not? When people come into our house, when they come into our presence and then they leave our presence, the end result of us as a holy priesthood is we should be blessing them as they come and as they go. Welcome was initially a blessing. I hope you are well as you come into my presence. Welcome. God's wellness come with you. It was initially a blessing and we've shortened it up. And when people leave, goodbye was a blessing. Goodness as you take your leave of me. May God's goodness be upon you. And we've shortened up those blessings and in that we've forgotten what they mean. But it used to be that Christians and believers, boy, when, you, when I come into your presence, when you leave my presence, as a servant of God, I'm going to bless you as you come. I'm going to bless you as you leave. The continual blessings should be what pour out of our mouth all the time in the context of prayer. So when should we be doing this? 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's clear instruction. Oh, I'm feeling down today. I'm just not in the mood to pray. Uh-uh, it's not about your mood. If you're a servant of God, you pray without ceasing. God, I'm in a horrible mood. You need to take that away from me so I can do your will. Everything, give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Jesus, in, in teaching his disciples to do this, he becomes the head prayer or the high priest of prayer in the temple. He's taking on and showing his new priests how to carry out their duties. Because a single high priest can't do this. The entire Levitical community had to be able to bless people as they came in and bless them as they leave. So, it required more than a high priest to do this particular task. One high priest can clear out the money changing tables. Like, you only need one person with a strong will to get the riffraff out of your temple. But to do this job, this praying job, Jesus needs a priesthood that'll do it with him uh, because there's thousands of people coming in and out of that temple. So, he needs hundreds of people blessing them in a day. So, which leads to the question. Who's this Jesus guy to take away the authority from priests and hand it to a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors? Who does he think he is? Like, honestly, I feel for the Pharisees a little bit here. Some of you might say that's because you're pharisaical, Sean. But I feel for him. Who's this carpenter that thinks he can take the blessing job away from us and give it to these other people? Who does he think he is? Under what authority is he doing this? Right? Which is the next question. All right? You would think the Pharisees, in dealing with a living God, would avoid the topic of authority. I thought, like, at some point, like, that's not the topic they should be getting into with Jesus. Who's, who's in authority here? Um, but they don't think he's God, so they'd get right into it. Verse 23. Now, when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? This is pure frustration at this point. They're not trying to trap him. There's not a trick. This is an out-front, overt challenge to his authority. And the issue that they have is authority. Um, the, The real conversation is, why have they not carried out the authority they were supposed to? Which is what Jesus showed him yesterday. They weren't doing any of the things they were supposed to do. They're abusing the authority they give. In other words, Jesus goes back to the courtyard to teach. He doesn't avoid them at all. He's totally public about this right? The multitudes are still there. Um, and he starts to carry out the duty of the priesthood. Leviticus one eleven, Priests, you do all these things so that you might teach the children of Israel all the statutes with the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. Their job in that temple was to teach and to teach and pray all day. Were they doing it? Well, Jesus just said, here's another thought. Maybe they were teaching. <laughs> and as they sat down to teach, nobody was in front of them. Right, You know you're not a teacher when nobody's sitting in front of you because where were they sitting? They're over with that carpenter across the courtyard. There's this crowd around Jesus and they're laughing and they're they're hearing it. They're taking notes in their little papyrus notebooks and the priests are sitting there and nobody's in front of them and Jesus has taken away their authority and so that might be why they're just running across the courtyard saying this because they're teaching and nobody's listening. It's just gone. It's empty. It also fulfills a prophecy, as with Matthew. The Messiah, according to prophecy, would be teaching in the temple. Jesus hasn't taught in the temple until here. So Isaiah 2-3, actually if you like Messiah prophecies, like the entire book of Messiah, or of Isaiah does this. So Isaiah 2-3, And many people shall go and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, For the house of God, the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. By the way, that passage also mentions the mountain of the Lord, which is the temple mount. So it kind of connects back in when Jesus was talking about the mountain. So Jesus isn't a man of contention, but he lives his entire ministry in contention. Isn't that crazy? He's a man of peace but he constantly has these struggles. It's that he doesn't introduce the struggles. He has to deal with the struggles. He doesn't strive, but other people strive with him. It's amazing Jesus lives with so much peace, freedom, joy, grace, truth. It makes anybody that lives like Jesus will stand out in a crowd. Like this kind of living actually does one. It's clearly the kind of question implies that the Pharisees think they're authority, but they got lots of leaves and they got no figs. And don't come up to Jesus, who is the bearer of all good things, the living water that feeds the fruit, and start questioning who's in authority. So this is the same authority that they're talking about that allowed for marketeers and thieves to set up in the courtyard. Under their authority, No praise is happening, especially the praise of children, which they tried to shut up. Their authority is more worried about tradition than healing, of which they weren't doing any healing, or teaching, of which clearly Jesus is the one that they're listening to when the teaching happens. So the hypocrisy here is like any other hypocrisy. Hypocrisy usually gets tied up in the details, the technicalities, and hypocrites are so worried about the technical stuff. What about this? What about that? What about this? That they miss the glaring truth that they're morally absent and gone. So instead of stopping God incarnate from teaching, which was, should have been the biggest blessing in the world, they should have just sat down and got out their little notebooks. Instead of doing that, um, they're yelling at him and interrupting him. So also notice that it says, as he was teaching, they came up, they interrupted him which is really impolite and improper. We do a lot to try to make sure we don't don't lose our focus while we're learning God's word. They come marching up right in the middle of his teaching and interrupt him. That's total disregard, total disrespect. Maybe they should have just got busy teaching and doing their job, but the abusers of power often don't do their job. They just are worried about other people. So Jesus is coming in and he's proving his authority in doing these things. There are some of the scribes and Pharisees that recognized Jesus as an authority already. So Nicodemus in John 3.2, the same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher that's come from God, for no man can do these miracles and doest except for God be with him. The reason I read that is because some of the Pharisees, I don't want to rip on all of them, recognized Jesus was not only a rabbi, they recognized he was a teacher, and they recognized that he came from God. So when these Pharisees come up saying, by what authority do you do this? They don't represent the whole priesthood. And I just want to point that out. There's Joseph of Arimathea. There's Nicodemus. We know some of them actually recognize that Jesus' authority came straight from God because of his miracles. So he's of the Aaronic, Aaron or Abrahamic, Melchizedek priesthood. He's not a Levite, but he definitely comes from God. And there are some people that have already said that. Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 7 has a whole discussion on Melchizedek. For where he, the forerunner has entered for us, Jesus having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's Hebrews 6, verse 20. So the disciples read this too, like Jesus is becoming the high priest right now, and that's what he's doing. And he, he, he's teaching these sorts of things. He's doing it right before he's about to get crucified. Like Jesus knows what's coming. What's the most important thing he could be doing a day or two before he goes to trial? Teaching the word of God teaching his disciples to pray, pray without ceasing, teach the word of God in season and out of season. That's what he's doing. And he's doing it in, in that sort of continual way that the disciples absolutely pick up on, Acts 6, 4. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Like there's a lot of stuff that has to do with how we get saved or how we become servants of the king. There's a very simple daily, day in, day out. We pray and we, we go to the ministry of the word, we teach people the word, we use the word, we encourage people with the word. These priests, they interrupt this. They're interrupting probably the greatest teaching the world has ever seen. God himself teaching the word he wrote. Like this is his book he's teaching. I would want, if I want to hear what the book means, hearing it from the author is probably a good source. Hearing it from a critic or a skeptic or an analyst is probably not the best source. So here's the trap. This is the trap they think they got him in. Jesus can stay quiet if he does. Uh, Judea, uh, uh, rabbinical law says he's guilty if he doesn't defend himself. So he cannot not say anything about whose authority do you get this from. He could not say anything, and then they got him as guilty. He could say he's from God, um, but then um, he would have to demonstrate it. They'd say, then demonstrate you're from God, and they'd want him to prove it with a miracle, which he's not, gonna, he's not a puppet. He's not going to do that for for these folks. Or he could say, I get that authority from myself because I am God, which is true. But if he says that it's blasphemy and they can just kill him right there. Either way, any way they do this, they can kind of they're trying to kill him. This is they're attacking, this is an attack to kill. Um, and then Jesus, like, so you think, how would we respond to these things? And but the great wisdom is how he, he deals with this critic. And I think this is great for when you're dealing with people that are hostile. But Jesus answered them and said to them, I'll ask you one thing, if, which if you tell me, I'll likewise tell you by what authority I do these things. So he's not staying quiet. He's answering. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And it, it, just like that. I love this about Jesus. He's just got him. If they're going to question what he gets his authority from, he's just going to ask them a basic judgment call. This is gatekeeper behavior. This is one of the tasks of the priests. You tell me, and they've had lots of time. John is dead. It's retrospect. They should have made a judgment call on John. Did John come from God or did he not come from God? And so Jesus puts them in the same trap they're trying to put him in, but it's their job as high priests. If they're the authority, it's their job to make a distinction here. If Jesus is not an authority, it's not his job to make a distinction. So as you come up and say, Who's in charge here? By what authority do you do these things? Okay then if you're the ones in authority, then make an authority decision. Make a judgment call because the authority is supposed to judge and you're not judging and you're supposed to. So here's a call that you need to make a judgment call on. They've had plenty of time to think about it. They've discussed it. And then it says, and they reasoned among themselves. That's bad because they should have been going to the Urim and the Thummim. They should have been praying. They should have been talking to God or they should have already made this distinction and this discernment, Right but they reasoned among themselves, which says they don't really care what God thinks. And they say, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a, as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And then he said, neither will I tell you what authority I'm doing these things. You can't make a judgment call, so I'm not obligated to go to you. as You're not an authority. Before all the multitudes that are in the temple courtyard, he showed them to have no fruit on their fig tree. You got leaves, you got no fruit. You are not producing what a priest should produce. So they question his authority, he questions their judgment. By by do they know what this what authority this is? So if we're trying to put, if we're trying to be pure, but we still talk sinfully, we're not an authority anymore. Right? If we have sin in our life, and we're, we shouldn't be in a position where we're making judgment calls or helping people with life decisions, because we have to get pure first. And we can't do it because we're impure people. The only thing we can then do is humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and be humble before God so that he gives us wisdom for other people. Jesus uses caution, not confrontation. I'd like to even suggest he's not fighting with them. He's simply saying, who are you to question me on that sort of thing? So a person runs up to you on the street. What are you doing praying on a street corner? What are you doing about this? It's like, well, who are you to decide who gets to pray on public street corners? Who gave you that authority? I don't see a badge on your outfit. I don't see that I'm disturbing the peas. I'm just praying, right? 1 Peter 3, 15. Always be ready to give an answer to every man that asks you for a reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. A lot of Christians forget that last prepositional phrase. There's meekness and fear. Jesus isn't going to just say, by my own authority, I'm God of the universe, which he could. That's true. But it's not always the best course to speak truth at people if it's like a battering ram. Sometimes it's best to use some discernment. And I don't think Jesus is doing this fearfully in the sense that he's scared of the Pharisees. But he's doing it in a way like, I don't need to be in a battle with you because you don't have authority. You're not my boss. I don't answer to you so I'm not going to bicker with you about bickery things. I got the life of God living in me. I mean, literally, Jesus is God, and he chooses to not get into it with these people. He chooses meekness and fear, right? And so that, that idea that we answer people in such a way that they have to answer for their own arrogance, why are you so arrogant that you're challenging me? Do you know all the answers of heaven? Not in an argumentative way, but in an honest, like, Like, let's get on the same playing field here, because I'm just a servant of the living God. Are you? Do you come with that kind of wisdom and authority? Where do you get your authority from? Well, I've thought through it myself, or I reasoned among themselves, as the Pharisees did. Well, I don't really care about your opinion. So if your answer comes from your own reasoning, I think your reasoning's worth about as much as a fig tree with no fruit. It's going to wither, and it's going to go away. Lots of leaves, no fruit. So they can't answer due to faithlessness. They don't believe Jesus is God and they, they, or that God was with John the Baptist and they don't answer because of fear of man because they're worried about what people will think about them if they answer a certain way. In both senses, the faithlessness and the fear, they have no legitimate authority. They are, they've absolutely stepped down from their position as high priest. So the baptism of John in verse 25 speaks of John's entire ministry And John came as a moral conscience. Follow God's law, repent, be saved. That was his ministry. That was the baptism of John is what he said. So he asks for explaining of those things. Jesus teaches. He does it with wisdom. He does it with courage. He doesn't equivocate on his answers. He doesn't worry about what people will think before he answers, but he answers diplomatically. He knows who he answers to. I think this is really Again, for mature believers, this is the stuff we try to digest. In this situation, do I do this? In this situation, do I do that? How do I react here? How do we react there? And the answer is God will give you the words to say in due season. We just say, Lord, what do you want me to say with this person? How do you want me to do it with this person? But we need to at least know our options and how they're modeled in the Bible. Verse 26, when they reason amongst themselves, uh, that's the wrong solution. Priests shouldn't do that. So they're actually they're, they're supposed to go to the Lord with that stuff, and they're not. Their answer in verse 27, we don't know, is actually in the Greek, oh. <laughs> I just thought it was great. Their answer is, uh, I. And that's, the, that's, we don't know, literally in the Greek, is oh, I. So the absolute negative is the "O" oh part. Uh, we in other words, they can't they can never um, and the no part Ida is or I do is to see or to perceive with sight, so it could equally be translated in English we don't know, but it could also be we never see, we never discern, we don't understand we don't get it, and it's in the absolute uh, context of that word absolute negative. Um, they're unable to discern is a literal translation of that Greek. So they're announcing before all the people that they do not have what God said they would have. Amazing. And I don't think they realize what they're doing here, but they just publicly expose themselves as useless leaders with an absolute no. They look like priests, they act like priests, but they don't have the heart, the love, or the capacity to serve. Job 5.12, God frustrates the devices of the crafty so their hands cannot carry out their plans. We recognize the arrogance, the ignorance, and it indicates a lack of relationship with Jesus. Jeremiah 23.21, another prophecy. I've not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I haven't spoke to them, yet they prophesy. But if they had stood in my counsel and caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. Verse 27, neither will I tell them. Jesus is responding in a way that God has already responded to false prophets. I'm not going to tell you anything. 1 Samuel 28, 6, Saul inquires of the Lord and the Lord did not answer him. Again, this is not new. Jesus is behaving as God has behaved throughout all of eternity. God does not owe an answer to the arrogant or the disobedient or the faithless. Neither do we. I got a call this week. You guys are going to love this. Guy calls up. He says, hi, I want to talk to somebody from Calvary Chapel, White Bear. Okay, that's me. I want to talk to like a pastor there. Okay, that's me. Okay, I want to talk to you about a theological thing. And I'm naive. I'm a nice guy. Oh, awesome. That's great. What do you want to talk about? Well, I got this verse I want to talk about. He reads the verse and he goes, now in this verse, Jesus is talking about the father. So when you say Jesus is God, isn't that just making Jesus a liar here? And I'm like, ah. So I stop and I, I'm like, okay, let's just back up just a second. I don't even know your name. So first of all, I don't answer to people I don't know. Like, I don't answer to you. So I get, I get the guy's name and then I ask him like, you know, what faith, like what faith branch are you from? So you clearly don't think Jesus is God. So what faith are you coming from? And he's like, well, I'm a Christian. No, you're not. There's lots of denominations of Christian, but most of them believe Jesus is God. That's kind of core. And so, like, what denomination of Christian are you coming from? Oh, I'm Jehovah's Witness. And so you decided this morning that you wanted to give me a call and just yell at me about my theology, and you're basing it on a single verse. You're going to take one verse and build your whole theology off of that? Well, no, not just one verse, and blah, blah, blah. Where does it say Jesus is God? So I point him to a verse where that's pretty clearly what Jesus is saying. I am God. You know, it's very clear. I say, you know, this is really, I'm not going to sit and pay. I don't owe you an answer on this, because this is pretty core Christian belief. Like, it's not even interesting to me. Well, the Bible never says Trinity anywhere in it. I'm like, yeah, because that's a word that came up as Christians were trying to put this all together. And this is a concept that we build off the scriptures, and we use the word Trinity to explain the concept, right? Jesus, as an incarnate human, is showing us or modeling for us how we deal with God the Father. It's not a hard concept, it's something that little children understand. Not only that, but like the, the idea of three in one is something God has mirrored in every one of us. I am Sean, the physical body, I am Sean, the spirit. And I am Sean, the mind that thinks. That's three different manifestations of Sean. I'm still Sean. It's not a complex concept. It's just one that they had to put a word around to understand God himself. God is in community with himself. Anyways, he started yelling and screaming, and I just said, Look, buddy, you called me. I didn't want to argue with you. And he cut me off to tell me he wasn't arguing with me, which I thought was really ironic. But it's also the point at which you know that conversation's going nowhere. And Jesus knows with these Pharisees, that conversation's going nowhere. They've already made their decision. They're walking into it, knowing who they are and what they are. And it's like, look, brother, I love you. I wish someday you find some peace, but I also don't have time for you today. Click. Right? And I call a couple other pastors, like, should I have been so rude with this guy? And they're like, no, that wasn't rude. He was the one being rude to you. And I I look at passages like this, and I'm encouraged. I just am not obligated to answer to aggressive, mean, nasty people that have already made up their mind. What I am obligated to do is pray for them. And I pray that, and this is, don't take this the wrong way. Podcasters don't take this sound clip and take it the wrong way. I pray that they wither. That the only thing that can get them closer to Jesus is if that arrogance breaks. If something happens in their life where they are shown they're they're just wrong. And it's not my argument. It won't be, I, nobody comes to Jesus by an argument, but they do come to Jesus when their heart gets softened. And I pray that when there's leaves and no figs, that they wither. It's the only thing that'll turn them. Jesus withers the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders, and he takes the Holy Spirit out of that temple, but he doesn't do it because he hates them. He does it because it's their only hope, it is their only chance to get back in the rightness with God. And if you go to the book of Revelation, God's hope is that all the Jewish people turn back to him and understand who he is. So the the goal of this isn't that, but sometimes people need some hardship, some withering for any hope of any fruit ever. So how do we deal with people when they're trying to start an argument with us? From this passage, I think we can say that when we're baited, we can just keep swimming. Like we're not obligated to bite that hook and we don't need to. Silence is wonderful communication too. It says a lot. When we're baited, Jesus then questions their authority. Who are you to hold the fishing pole? Right? Like people singing on a plane and that was a news story last week and then everybody, they got, they went to the airline saying, you got to stop these people from, it was Easter and they were singing like praise songs on the plane and some people got really upset about that. Really? Like you're going to shut up people from singing? Like who are you to hold that fishing pole? Who are you to decide what people can share with other people when they come together? We just like to sing. That makes us really childlike and wonderful and awesome, and you should maybe join us. Um, So he's talking about authority roles. They lose their authority. Verse 28, (laughs) but what do you think? I love this because Jesus now treats them like they're ignorant people. This is another thing to say he doesn't hate them. He's trying to teach them after he just took away their authority. Now you're now you're students. So what do you think? He poses a question. This is what rabbis would do. A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I won't. But afterwards he regretted it and went. And then he came to the second and said likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he didn't go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Notice here that the father goes to the sons individually. Each person in the kingdom of God God talks to us individually and he asks us to do things. Which of the two will do the will of his father? This is the question Jesus gave to him. So he doesn't just walk away. He just says, I'm not going to talk to you about authority, but I am going to, I'm going to tell you a story. And as rabbis, people would come up and say, okay, I got this situation. What do I do? So again, he's acting as gatekeeper here and judge. He's seeing what they, how they judge it. And they said to him the first And Jesus said to them, amen, assuredly, I say to you that the tax collectors and the harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. (laughs) Oh my goodness, what a shot. What a shot. Think of how offensive that is because they wouldn't even go into the neighborhoods with these people. And he's saying, those people are gonna get into heaven before you. So now it's not an abstract story. He's actually, (laughs) we don't see this a lot in the Church of America. He's actually rebuking them and convicting them all at the same time. You are the sinner. And we have a large portion of, you know, quote unquote Christian churches that don't say there's such a thing as sin. They don't focus on that. But he's actually saying, you guys got some sin in your life. For John came to you, verse 32, John came to you in the way of righteousness. Let me answer the question for you. He came as God told him to come. He came in the way of righteousness. There's the decision. That's what they should have said. And you didn't believe him. That's the truth, but tax collectors and harlots did believe him. And when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe. You didn't repent, and you didn't believe him. So now it's afterwards, and he said, "By what authority did John come from?" And they don't know, and they don't know because they don't see God. They don't know God. They're not on their way to the kingdom of heaven. But there is this chance of repent. God always does this. In verse twenty says eight, when he says, "What do you think?" He moves on to this story about obedience, not about authority. The father has authority that's unquestionable in the story. Every father has a right to ask his kids to work. Believe it, Grand Katie. Just like there's tares and wheat in the field, he owns that field and, and they all grow up in the same field. There's free choice. Everybody gets talked to individually. So there's two sinners in the story. One is rudely refusing, refusing to do it, but then he goes and does it anyways. And then you got the hypocrite who warmly says he'll do it, but he never does it. And he says, which of these should be? How should the, the which of these did the will of the Father? Um, the I go, but then you don't. It's easy as Christians to accuse other Christians of not doing enough in the Spirit, because God's called us to do these things, and then we look around and other people aren't doing all these things. That goes back to the parable of the the workers that were upset because different people got different rewards from the king, or they all got the same reward, but they did different amounts of work and Jesus rebuked that thinking. The other temptation is that we don't do anything in the kingdom of God, and we don't worry about the people that do everything. We just are happy to do that, and we make a bunch of lame excuses not to do things. So when we worship God, that's our time. Uh, When we're not worshiping God, when we don't show up for God's stuff, who gets the excuse? Because that's who you really worship. I can't do that because... And this isn't always the case, but it's one of those things that as Christians, we need to check ourselves on that. We don't want to be, we don't have have a lot of leaves and no figs, right? We don't have to bear a lot of fruit on our fig tree, but we should be bearing some fruit on our fig tree or there's a reaction from God. The authority comes from a submission to God. That's it. When God says, go work in our field, we're supposed to work in the field to whatever degree God's called us to do that. So Jesus reduces it to a simple, simple question. Which of the two did the will of the Father? And they answer, the first. So even in their growing hatred of Jesus, they're still condemning themselves. That's how truth just works. Truth cuts through a lot of constructed thinking that humans do. Truth just goes right through it. So he's shaking the fig tree. You guys got any fruit on you at all? Any food, any truth, any, any of God's word? And by answering, they just admit they do not have the grounds to be judges or gatekeepers as the Levites were supposed to. Verse 32, John comes in the way of righteousness. Matthew 3.2, John says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message of John the Baptist. That's his ministry. That's his baptism. Is that When you get baptized with John the Baptist, you are repenting from your sin to join a kingdom of heaven. So they're like the sin that said they would do the work, but then they don't. They see harlots like Mary, tax collectors like Matthew. They quit their sin and they follow Jesus. The, the Pharisees should be doing the same thing, and they don't. So they're not on their way to the kingdom of God right now. It doesn't matter what you say. It matters what your heart is and if you obey God. And the sayings should be prayers coming out. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? Luke 6.46. If we lean on the word of God our Father, then we have authority to say the things that he has told us to say. I'm going to say that again. If we lean on the word of God, we know what to say, and when we say it, we say it with the full authority of God because it's His words. It's easy. We relent. We believe His words. John fourteen twenty three. Jesus answered them and said, If anybody loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jehovah's Witnesses. That is a passage that is the Father and Jesus are one, and you don't have two beings making their home in you. You have one being making. I won't. It was an interesting phone call. Jesus, the Pharisees question authority. Jesus reveals their lack of authority and he points it out to him. You did not afterwards relent and believe him, verse 32. John, 1 John 2.4, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth isn't in him. So the disciples got the message here. This also fulfills prophecy once again. The prophecies would be that the priests would be the stumblers, the corruptors, the base priests. So Malachi 2:89, last book of the Old Testament, but you have departed out of the way, you've caused many to stumble at the law and you've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people according according as you have not kept my ways, but you've been partial in the law. Yep, Jesus shows up and does that. Exactly as Malachi said he would. Jesus becomes the head gatekeeper that is now officially every role of the high priest that Jesus has now taken authority in. Every single one. Verse 33. Here another parable. I like this. As long as the Pharisees are kind of slack-jawed standing in front of him, having just been insulted, he's like, as long as you're standing here, let me give you another parable. I'll just keep teaching because uh, he's a teacher. It's what he does. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who, who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. Kind of like the Law of Moses. All the tools were given to the vinekeepers. You have everything you need. And as he leased it to the vine dressers, he went out into a far country. And now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit, kind of like prophets looking for fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants and they beat one, killed one, stoned another, you know, kind of like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Zechariah in order. And again, He sent other servants, more than the first, like the minor prophets. And they did likewise to them. And then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. You know, kind of like Jesus. And when the divine dressers saw the son, they said amongst themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Kind of like Jesus is saying the Pharisees know darn well that he comes from God. They recognize it and they reject it. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him kind of like crucifying the Son of God, kind of like. As their treatment gets worse, the Lord's investment grows over time. They took him at Gethsemane, they cast him out at Caiaphas' council, and then they killed him on the cross. For each level of this, this isn't rocket science, if we really want to understand God, Jesus makes it really simple. It's rarely about understanding God. It's about submitting to God. So when someone comes up to us and they're confrontational and they're antagonistic and they're angry because we're talking about God, loving God, or singing about God, it's rarely about them understanding the gospel. It's usually about them submitting to the gospel, which is why it's important to talk about sin. Verse 40 Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what'll he do to the vine dressers? Now, I like this too. The Pharisees have just been told that they are the disobedient sons. And Jesus is asking them another question. They have struck out twice with Jesus. They should really hesitate to answer a third time, but they can't because they're arrogant. Because as a teacher, when a kid comes up and says, Teacher, I got a question, trust me, the instinct of the teacher is to answer the question. Answer the, this is what we do, we answer questions. I think the Pharisees are so conditioned to knowing everything, they can't resist a question so they bite. <laughs> At the same time, they just had it model where Jesus said, I'm not going to answer your question because you can't answer mine. So they just saw restraint, but they have none. So in verse 41, they, instead of watching their backs, uh, they step right into another one. It's like when you're in a minefield and you set one off and th- that makes you bounce and it sets off a second one and then you start just bouncing. I, I shouldn't say a minefield. It's more like, like walking on popping material, packing material right? But they just keep stepping on it. Uh, They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him fruits in their seasons. First of all, the Pharisees say this beautifully. They nail it. He's going to lease his vineyard to other vine dressers. You guys have failed to keep the the vineyard. I'm going to take it away from you. I'm going to give it to other people. Thank God because as Gentiles, we're some of those people God's given this to. So they give voice to their own demise. They don't care for God's harvest. They got nice leaves, but no figs, right? And as David's anger was greatly kindled against the men, he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, that man has done the thing. He shall surely die. This is also right in God's character. Nathan the prophet goes up to David, and David says, this is what should happen to that guy. And Nathan says, you're that guy. Surprise! Pharisees should have seen this coming a million miles away. But they're just so lost They actually recognize justice because justice is, I think, written on our hearts. The Pharisees know exactly what the just behavior is for themselves. It's deserved. It's not unfair. And by pronouncing it themselves, there's nothing unjust about taking the priesthood away from the Levites. They've pronounced the judgment on themselves. I love this. God's going to have fruit in his system. He's going to build a new kingdom. He's going to build a new church. Our season is here, and God's calling all of us to render fruit in our season. In other words, do it. Don't just talk about it. It's all week we're doing this. So Jesus answered them, have you never read the scriptures? I think Jesus wanted one more chance to say that to the Pharisees. It's been progressive. You should read this in the scriptures. Did you not read what I told you to read in the scriptures? And now he says, have you never read in the scriptures? Have you even read them? And I don't think Jesus would say that unless that's true. Do you know people that have gone to seminary but they've never read the whole Bible? But they call themselves people that are pastors? They've never read the whole Bible. Don't be, don't be that. Read the scriptures. Any reading of the Bible should show them the truth of what Jesus is saying here. Oh, this applies, by the way, that they're not copying the scriptures. If they're scribes, the last of the priests—I'm sorry, this is the last of the priesthoods. If they're scribes, they should have re- been writing out the whole thing. So that's not all of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's a group called the scribes, scribes and Pharisees. But by saying this to the elders, it implies that not only are they not being scribes, they're not faithful to the word of God at all. They haven't even read it. So, Second Chronicles thirty-four thirteen, the Levites were to serve the nations as scribes. And to keep the Bible. So, in memorizing it, Jesus is now becoming the head scribe because he's actually reciting the word of God. And in this particular case, he doesn't paraphrase at all. He gets this word for word The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our own eyes. I want to point out not only is it word to word, it's in the past tense. And when Jesus says that, it's now in the past tense. He just took the priesthood, it's done, it is finished. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but whoever, on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. That's an interesting passage, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Jesus is quoting David when he says this. It's the same song that declares that this is the day the Lord has made. This is the day. It's that psalm that he quotes this from. It, and because this is the day the Lord has made, It's the same book from which the children that were singing their Hosannas got their Hosannas from. It's the book of Psalms. So the the same stuff the kids were singing that the Pharisees tried to quiet. Uh, Let me read this from Psalm 118 verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them, just like a humble camel. I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. What's the gate of the Lord? The gate of the Lord is that the Lord just became our salvation. I will praise you for you have answered me. In other words, he prays and it gets answered. And I've become my salvation. It's personal. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. So when Jesus quotes a psalm, they should have it like good Pharisees, they should have memorized some of these psalms. They're songs that kids sing. So he's all those words are coming back when he cites this to them. This is the day this is the week of weeks, this is the Messiah, this is the rock of our salvation. Here you are in the moment and you're trying to get me to shut up. That's what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees. I'm the stone, he's the cornerstone of the church. He's the rock of salvation. He's the rock that was struck, Exodus 17, 6. I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. Jesus becomes the rock of our salvation that the elders are going to strike and living water is going to pour forth from that, from that happening. They're a stumbling block to the proud, Isaiah 8. The stone is a foundation, Isaiah 28. The stone is a judge, Daniel 2. Messiah is the stone, the cornerstone. God himself, He has become my salvation. On whomever it falls, it'll grind him to powder, Matthew 21, 44. That's It's either a thinly veiled threat, like really as the Pharisees and Sadducees, wouldn't you hear that as a threat? We can be broken in our humility or we can be broken in judgment. Either way, God gets the glory. Take your pick. So these are dead priests. They got no joy. They got no praise. They're blind. They can't heal people. They shut up children. They're bitter about it. They can't teach. They can't be a gatekeeper. They're worthless. They're a tree that he shook and it had no fruit. Actually, that's that's it. He's shown his authority. He's shown his priestly duties. Jesus is the high priest. Verse 43 The kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. You're done he doesn't go back to the temple necessarily for this christianity doesn't replace judaism god's just simply moving on it's the same god it's marvelous what he's done in the beginning god led the the, the nation of israel through abraham he just one on one relationship and the result of that relationship was the israelites ended up in slavery and they were servants to another kingdom then exodus happens god Leads them through a guy named Moses, gives them the law, and he expects that the Levites and the judges and the priests are going to informally guide them in the way of God. The end result of that is they end up in rebellion. He sends them out, uh, you know, he sends the judges to show up and respond to that rebellion. So then he starts to lead through judges, and that doesn't work. So then he gives them a king, which centralizes authority. In the end, the kingship doesn't work, so he actually sends them to Babylon. They lose their kingdom again. So God has, throughout the Old Testament, pulled his blessing off of formal arrangements. This is the end of the priests as intercessors. He's destroying the Mosaic priesthood. This system isn't working, but God remains the same. It's all part of God's plan. And then let's go into the future. He's going to lead the world through his disciples as evangelists via the Holy Spirit a centralized church. Then the church starts to disaggregate, just like with the judges, right? And then he moves to a more informal model where individual pastors are leading people through the Holy Spirit. But in the end, it's going to be just like it was in the beginning, God himself leading us directly from his throne. And we're going to go back to that because at the end of the day, the church was going to end up like Laodicea and all the other churches. It's going to fail. Because it's a system of God working with his people that in the end of the time, when he comes back a second time, he's going to set up a new system. That doesn't mean the religion changed. It just means that it's a new period of time, a new era. But those who miss the change, are no, they're going to be crumbled by that stone. And that's kind of you know, why Judaism is more like Judaism broke off of God's plan and Christianity has stayed with it. And that's just a different perspective. So the Levitical priesthood has served its season. It's done. It's done along a timeline. That hedge of protection is now gone. And Isaiah 5.5, 5, I now go to you and I'll tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge and it shall be eaten up and break down the wall thereof and it shall be trodden down. This is like Gandalf saying, your staff is broken. Your authority's gone. It's all done. Verse 45, now when the chief priests and Pharisees... <clears throat> Oh, this is one of my favorite verses in the chapter. Chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable. They perceived that he was speaking of them. <laughs> I just, like, they just figured it out. In other words, they got it. They're slow, but they get there. Instead of repenting, like, if they really understood him, they should just repent and get on board. But it twists into hate. And this false sense of control, it's amazing how people think they're in control. They think their little kingdom matters to God, and it doesn't. We're kind of a blip on God's radar. In the face of eternity, whatever little kingdom we can build for 60, 70 years, it's worthless. So, but when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes. So when I read that 46, it's like they, they almost like started to grab for him, but then they realized the crowd wasn't with them. But the anger is so much, they want to just reach out and hit him and hurt him. Because they took him for a prophet. So the people see Jesus and agree with Jesus. The Pharisees don't. They've then walked away from Jesus. It's not that Jesus is walking away from them. Jesus took their authority away, but he continued to teach them. Did you see that? Like, it's not like Jesus walked away from them. But they hate him. Point being, they're no longer God's priests. And I think that's the, the end of Matthew 21. Is this, this is this had to get done before the crucifixion. The new system had to be birthed, and it's done within days. So the question is still before us. It's the same question that's always been there. Who is Jesus to us? Is he our Lord and Savior? Is he some prophet? Is he some fool that thought he was God? Or do we serve him as God Almighty? Is he our Lord? Who is God to us? First Psalm 1.3, I'll end on this based on how you answer this question has everything to do with that vineyard. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth fruit in his season and his leaf shall not wither and whatsoever he does shall prosper. That's the, if there is a prosperity gospel, that's it. If we follow God's ways, our circumstances don't matter. Our heart continues to bloom. We bear fruit, we don't wither. And and there's going to be trials. Heck, you, you start to follow Jesus, you're entering a battlefield. Trials are going to be there, but that's the amazing thing about fig trees. They're really resilient plants. Once they get their roots in and they get their water system, they go for decades. They're absolutely incredible plants. And God wants us to be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And we bring forth fruit in our season, unlike these priests, and our leaf doesn't wither And whatever we do prospers. And if we're doing God's will, that means the kingdom of God grows. It's beautiful stuff. Anyways, Matthew 21, let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just humbly submit to you. This is a a convicting message, Lord, because as we serve you, and the more we serve you, the more the temptation to think we're righteous on our own merits can seep in. And Lord, I feel sorry for these priests and these Pharisees that have given their life to your service and they still miss the point. The people that say, Lord, Lord, and he says, I don't know you. Lord, may our relationship with you be so sweet and personal and intimate and fruitful, Lord, that that what we do in the world comes out of how much we love you. Lord, help us to never do something to prove something to you or to think that our little kingdoms matter to you. Help us never to be striving for control so much that we quiet other people from praising your name and that we stop the march of the church through history. Lord, it's your work and it's your hands and we're just vine dressers, And we're here to just take care of it, Lord, to prune prune out the dead stuff and and keep the living stuff, Lord, and to discern and think and make judgment calls. Uh, Lord, you've asked us to just be your servants and to minister one to another, to be in your word, to pray without ceasing, Lord, those things are so easy, but everything in our flesh fights against those very things that will give us life. So, Lord, help us to just be disciplined like athletes. Lord, that we pursue the prize and we seek it without stopping. Lord, there's nothing that gets in the way of, of, of just doing your work and doing your will. Lord, we don't just get saved and then think we're done. We get saved and we get to work. And, Lord, help us to just be part of the bounty, part of the harvest. Lord, we especially want to bless our sister who is heading off to overseas. Lord, bless her as she goes out into the field to do your work. Just be with her. But Lord, don't be with her in the results that she gets. Be with her in that her heart continues to grow and change. And out of the abundance of the heart, you speak. And Lord, may she just constantly be drawing closer to you and trust that in doing that, her ministry will explode. Lord, that, that your Holy Spirit will just be showering upon her first and everybody around her. Um, Lord, just bless her. Bless what she's doing. Um, Lord, as she goes into other places and meets new people, she might run into some Pharisees. Lord, help her to just not worry about it. Let it to run right off her back and to shake it off. Um, And Lord, we just pray for those people, those people that think they have everything under control and they just have nothing and their hearts in the wrong place. So Lord, let, let us not read this and be angry at the Pharisees. Let's read this, Lord, and have compassionate hearts and have a heart to teach those Pharisees, even as we say what they're doing is wrong. So bless that effort. Lord, as we go forward and we leave here, and we go out into the ministry field, I pray that that ministry is given glory to you in all regards and all respects. Be with each person in this room. Bless them. Uh, may your, your face shine upon them. May you give them rest. Lord, may they march forth and do things, Lord, in your name and with your blessing in Jesus' name.